today we are in part two of a three-part series on the Trinity. It would be a bit weird if it wasn't three parts, although you could do an introduction and then three parts. We started it last week, so you probably will do well to go and listen to that preach, which you have online, because I kind of outlined the groundwork last week, but just to, just to state things, and then we'll start to unpack, okay? So this week, we're looking at part two, Trinity, God the Son. Can you say Son? Last week, we looked at God the Father. Can you say Father? So Christians believe in one God, okay? Now, that's not unique in the world. About half of the 8 billion people in the world believe in one God, Christians, Jews, Muslims, and some others, okay? But what is unique to Christianity is that we believe in one God who has eternally existed as three persons. Got it? Well, some of you are sharper than me. I am getting it little, little by little. So what Christians believe is that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have eternally existed as one God and three persons. And the, one of the results of that is that you can say God is love, okay? Because if you have a Unitarian God, one person, well, the only person God is loving is themselves. And they might create out of a need for followers or out of a need for loneliness or out of a need for love. If you speak of a Trinitarian God, they create as an overflow of love. They already have companionship, unity within them. It's a bit of a mystery. It's okay. You can breathe. No one's going to fully grasp it. But what we do have is the Bible, which teaches us about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And for example, the baptism of Jesus, you see God the Father, Son, and Spirit all present and affirming. So we read in Matthew chapter 3, as soon as Jesus was baptized, it's a good reason to get baptized. If you were a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized, you should be. We would love the privilege of baptizing with you to follow Jesus' example, but also it's a demonstration of faith of what has happened to us. So if you haven't been baptized and you've got questions, please come and find me after the service. Jesus was baptized. He went up out of the water. So Jesus, the Son, is there. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God, so God the Spirit, descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the voice of the Father, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So God in three persons present at once. We do not believe in modalism, which is some teaching that God changes modes, or if you like to call it, some people, moodalism. Some days he's in the mood of being fatherly, but then he will change and be in the mood of being sunly or change and go into the mode of being kind of spirit. Um, that suggests that God changes from one to the other. God is all ways, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Last week, we looked at uh, this question. Do you know God as a father? So some of you weren't here last week. So just ask that question. When you think of God, and the way you relate to God, does God as Father come into your thoughts? Does God as Father and the sense of a Father's affection for a son, is that how that shapes our sense of worship? Yes, it's true. He's Lord, He's Creator, He's King, He's majestic, powerful victor. But the disciples would look at Jesus and how He prayed, how He related to God. And they said, teach us how to pray. They saw something in Jesus about the way he related and spoke to God that they had to have. 
And what does Jesus do in response? Teaches us to pray. And how does he start? Our Father. Now, sadly, and I, I, I grew up in a tradition like this, we can say the Lord's Prayer hundreds of times a week, and we know it off by heart, but we just kind of skip over the fact that he's our Father. It's preeminently who God is. He's eternally been a loving Father. Others see him as a despot or whatever it might be. But as we read in John chapter 17, verse 24, Jesus says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you, Father, have loved me before the creation of the world. God the Father has been loving the Son since the creation of the world. And creation was an overflow and an invitation into this beautiful community of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, doting and loving one another and affirming one another. And creation is like, you get to taste and see the goodness of the Lord. Would you come into that? So that question I asked is, do you know God as your Father? There'll be very different answers in this room. Some of you say, I don't know God. I don't even know if I believe in God. You're so welcome. We trust that you would taste and see something this morning of uh, who God is and who the Lord Jesus is, the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. Others of us will be like, yeah, I know that. Underline, as if we've got it. You haven't. It's a lifelong journey, but you might be getting it. Others of us, it's a bit painful. You think, oh, you have no idea. Don't even talk about Father to me for whatever reason. Um, and there'll be hurts and pains. But you can't disconnect God being a Father to Jesus being the Son. And I just want to wrestle with two questions this morning. Okay, if, if this Trinity has always been existing in perfect community and creation is the overflow of this perfect community, does the world and creation resemble a beautiful, perfect, loving community? No. I mean, you just have to listen to one newspaper headline or, or read about wars and attacks and floods and division and simply the brokenness in this room that all of us would have tasted something of. Surely, you got, has that question occurred to you as we've spoken about the Trinity? If creation's an overflow and an invitation into something so perfect and wonderful and glorious, why is the world not so? Now, theologians have got your three-point answer already. Well done. We'll get there. But I think there's a shade of it that we miss. So, so two questions. Why, why is the world not like that if it's an overflow? And then why did God the Son have to come to the earth as Jesus? Okay, again, we might have some like bullet point answers to that. But if Jesus was so happy, God the Son in eternity, why did he have to come to earth? And I, I think we have lots of, if you've been in church in a while, you can take certain answers. Because of sin. Can you say sin? So who thought that? Who thought, why is the world broken? Because of sin. You know, who's, who, who had that answer? Come on, be brave. It's right. Okay, it's all right. You can be, um, but, but what do we mean by sin? And obviously, uh, there, there, there's different ways you can define it. Today, we're looking at particularly through the lens of God the Son. So let's go right back to the beginning into Genesis, okay? And see how things were made. So in the beginning of creation, as Scripture tells us, God did make a perfect creation, okay? So day one to three in Genesis, God forms the earth, doesn't he? He forms light and dark, then he forms sky and sea, and then he forms land and vegetation. 
days one to three. Days four to six, he fills it, okay? So lights for the night and day, birds and fish for the sky and sea, and humans and animals for the earth, okay? There's a beautiful artistic pattern in, in Genesis. I'm, I'm not entirely sure it's trying to describe to the nth detail exactly how did God. I think there's a lot of poetic description, but I do believe God created the world. So day one and three, he forms it. Day four and six, he fills it. And who's the pinnacle of God's creation? Turn around and have a look around. You, humans, mankind were the pinnacle of God's creation. Uniquely, God says, he made man and woman in his image to subdue the earth, to cultivate it, to form it, to fill it through procreation, okay? So God's saying, all this beautiful world I've done, hey, join in with me in forming and filling the world. And the way you're going to fill it is a man and a woman united in covenant relationship, what we would call marriage, having children. It's what God calls us to as we form and fill the earth. Now, obviously, that's not exactly how it works for everyone. You know, singleness, for example, is a highly commended station in life, if you like, in Scripture. We talk about that another time. But God creates mankind, and He says, this beautiful earth, you to create and fill it. And we get this picture in Genesis of God walking in the cool of the day. Who would like a gentle breeze through the room right now? Wouldn't it be nice? When you see this phrase, walking with God in Scripture, it talks about an intimacy, it talks about a closeness. It talks about a unity. And you get this picture in Genesis of God walking in the cool of the day in the garden with Adam and Eve, right? And God says, as a loving father, I give you purpose to fill the earth and enjoy being made in the image of God because I do this. I create. I fill. I form. Okay? And I'm going to give you protection as a loving, doting father. You are free, totally free. You can have anything you want, but don't eat of the fruit of this tree. You know the story, if you've been in church at all, okay? The bad fruit, which apparently was an apple, or whatever it was in the, in the pictures that you see. Okay, what fruit would it be if you were writing the story? No, don't, don't answer that. Don't answer <laughs> You'll offend someone in church. Um, okay, don't, don't eat of this, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then what happens is Adam and Eve are tempted, the serpent comes, tempts Eve, Adam joins in, and they choose... Now, language would be interesting here. What do you think happened in that moment? They chose. They sinned, okay? That would be true. They rebelled. That would be true. They chose to love something else other than God. God said, as your heavenly Father, love me. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Put God first. But in that moment, they were tempted to love self and self-actualization and self-determination. We're not going to choose your way. We're going to love our way more, right? We're going to want to know what's right and wrong and the knowledge of good and evil. So what happened is sin, rebellion, rejection, all of that is true. But what happened is they replaced their first love, right? That's the root of all sin. So we're not going to love you first and foremost, God. We're going to love working out things our own way. Okay, That's another way to define sin. In fact, I would say it's probably getting to the essence of what sin is. It's loving something else other than God. Because when you ask the question then, what is sin? Is it breaking a rule? Yeah? 
that might be part of it. Is it bad behavior, which is how most of us think of sin, is it not? Okay? So he has a question, we'll come back to it. When someone, this happens like in Christian circles, is you, are you Christ-like? Have you ever been asked that question? You're like, or discipleship? If you're a follower of Jesus, are you Christ-like? But what we really mean is, are you behaving like Jesus? Right? We're not asking, have you got the heart that Jesus has got? We're asking, is your behavior terminating? And uh, this is where you get intensely wrong if you focus primarily on behavior, what we do and what's right and wrong. So is sin rule-breaking? Well, yes. Is it doing a wrong action? Well, yes. Is it thinking a wrong feeling? Well, it can be. But primarily what when happened is not that Adam and Eve stopped doing right or stopped even loving. It's that they stopped loving God first and they loved something else. Or as some people would say, our root problem is disordered loves. Okay? We all love something. We are all actually motivated and driven by love. It's what drives us. At the end of the day, what we love tells us what we worship. Right? So what in your life, if it was taken away tomorrow, would not just be suitably sad or horrendous, or, but would utterly devastate you and leave you with no meaning? If it was all stripped away, pain is natural, it's normal, disappointment, grieving, yes, but it would leave you absolutely with no meaning and purpose in life. Maybe it's that that we're worshiping first and foremost, because it is determining our ultimate happiness. So they became those who loved themselves. Their love turned from God to self for gaining wisdom. Or as Michael Reeves put it, the problem is deeper than her actions, speaking of Eve. It's deeper than outward disobedience. Her act of sin was merely the manifestation of the turn in her heart. She now desired fruit more than God. She desired something else more than God. And this is at the root of every sin. Okay, so James tells us in James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, when tempted, temptation is not a sin, is it? Okay, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by the unkindness of another, or dragged away by the nothing out there, but when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. This is the process. We get tempted. There's a love inside of us that likes that. It's not because someone was unkind to you and you hit them. It's their fault. No, it's not. Our reactions come from within us. Right? We can never blame anyone else for our actions. Now, <laughs> they might stir them up. They might reveal them. They might shine light on things. But it's because of what is within us that we act, which is what happened with Eve there. Something deeper than rule-breaking has gone wrong. Something deeper than misbehavior. Love has been twisted and turned from God to other things and to Self. So where am I going with this on the Trinity, you're asking? Okay, we, we will we'll get there. Because every, under every sin, there's another sin, right? And most of our time in Christian circles, we talk about behaving correctly. But actually, we need to start dealing with the heart issue, right? <laughs> you know, 
um, whatever it might be. So, for example, whether it's lying, or whether it's gluttony, or pride, or sexual immorality, or gossip, or slander, you can go on and on. We're loving something more than God. We say, you can satisfy me more than God. I'm feeling lonely and I'm feeling low food. You're going to make me feel better. Okay? I'm prone to turning to food when I'm bored or when I'm tired or when I'm feeling a bit sorry for myself. Okay? Others of us, we turn to watching something. We turn to a quick fix. Maybe it's a person. You think, you know, sexual intimacy right now and your companionship, I love that more than God and trusting what he says is good for me. So how does God react when we betray him like that? Because whether you believe in God or not, if he's there, this is true, is it not? Right? It's, it's like, okay, we've not chosen your way. We're very clear what you want for us, God, but we're coming this way. How have you reacted when someone has rejected you in the past? Blatantly. It has been very clear. They've turned aside and they've rejected. How would you react? And how does God react to this turning away from loving him to loving others? Okay? So some of us, we think judgment. God judges, right? There is truth in that. There is justice in God, and there is that. But God's first impulse as an eternal loving father is to respond in love. And God's response in creation and Adam and Eve's rebellion, and therefore we've inherited all of this, is that he turned in love. So 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 to 10 says, Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God. You know, this is love. We turned away from him, and we love other things, and we put first, not because we earned it, not because we even turned around and said, Sorry, God. That's not where it starts. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he Loved us. God is the first mover. God is the initiator. And if God initiates, do you ever have to do anything to earn it if it's already coming towards you? You do not have to earn God's love, dear friends. And the people who need to hear that most often are not necessarily those who don't follow Jesus. But those of us who have been Christians for a long time and know all the right answers. But every day we can... Suddenly think, today I'm feeling great because I feel I've honored Jesus. Today I'm feeling, oh, he doesn't love me. Now there's grief and there's sorrow over sin, yes. But the sense of God's constant eternal love is sure. God's response to rejection is love, not self-pity, not harsh vitriol, not stuff you then, excuse me, <laughs> but love. And not a flimsy, oh, it doesn't matter love. It's a robust, deep justice-filled love, but it is love. 1 John 3, 16 this is how we know what love is. How do you know what love is, oh people? Jesus Christ, the Son, laid down his life for us. Or John 3, 16, maybe more well known. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal verses. Stunning verses. God's response to rejection is love. Is this how you see God? Now, we're touching on last week, God the Father, because you, you can't speak about one without speaking about the other. So what we can get from this is that God sent his son to take our place so that we can get a clean record and get to heaven when we die. Right? Hallelujah. 
you are, you can say hallelujah. I'm not sitting here for a, that, that, that's okay. Now, now that's part of it, but if you drill down, the gospel behind that is God's like a school teacher, and we've been caught doing wrong. And some kind pupil comes along and says, oh, don't worry, I did it. And they get the black mark, and we get to go free. And the head teacher's appeased, right? That can feel kind of right, can't it? But that is not the gospel. There's echoes of the gospel in that. But that stems from thinking that God is a school teacher who makes rules, and our greatest problem is that we've broken rules. That is not our greatest problem. Breaking rules is the fruit of something far deeper than us, than our actions. God sent his son Jesus, yes, to save us out of something. 100% true, right? Out of slavery to sin. Out of condemnation for our wrongdoing. Out of much. But God the son came to bring us into something. To save us into something. In fact, he came not just to make it possible. He came to share all that he has in his relationship with God the Father. Okay? So we start. He came to share with us all that he has with God the Father. Not just to make it okay between us and God the Father. He came to share it with us. We are saved out of sin into sonship. Yes, into freedom, that's true. But freedom as Sons, having everything Jesus has with the Father. So turn with me to John chapter 17, if you like. So that's kind of some of the, the, the background as we, as we view sin. Our problem is actually disordered loves. And Jesus comes not just to save us out of the, the, the penalty of what we've done, justice, okay? But to bring us into something. So Jesus prays in John chapter 17. It's a beautiful high priestly prayer. Um, not long before he's arrested and condemned. And Jesus says this, Father, interesting how he always relates to the Father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life. Can you say eternal life? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the creation of the world. He's eternally existed, right? Here we see the Son has been with the Father. But notice how he speaks of eternal life. So if you were sharing with someone and someone says, what is eternal life? How would you answer that? I think what we would say is eternal life means that your sins get forgiven so you get to escape hell and you go to heaven and be with God forever, right? That's a fair gospel, okay? There's truth in that. But we can think then there's just a problem's been solved like the schoolboy. <laughs> we don't get the bad mark against us and we get to get in. Yes, don't, not in detention. We get to, you know, go free. But actually eternal life is that they may know God. And this know is experiential encounter full knowledge of God. So God does not send a message just with words. 
he could have done, blazoned across the sky, I love you, <laughs> repent of your sins, and he has a solution that I might provide, a sacrifice of some sort. He doesn't just send words, or he doesn't send a messenger with the word even. He sends himself as his word in his son to fully communicate who he is and what he invites us into. So some of you will know the verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God and was with God. And Okay, well, why, why are you calling him the Word? Because he is God's full communication. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint nature of God. You want to know what God's Word is? It is Jesus. You want to know how God feels for the marginalized? Look at Jesus, you want to know how God feels about that or what God is like or how he reacts in that circumstance? Look at Jesus, full of grace. He is the word of God, God's full communication, not just in text, but embodied in Jesus Christ. And Jesus has come to fully communicate and demonstrate what he invites us into. So he continues in John chapter 17, verse 20 to 23. My prayer is not for them alone, his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Okay, so that will be some of us in this room. And if you don't follow Jesus yet, and you might one day, you. I pray for all those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. This is not some flimsy unity, okay? This is oneness that Jesus shares with the Father that he's getting at. That they may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Okay, that's the kind of one he's talking about. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are. Isn't that stunning? So this isn't unity that signs off on a doctrinal statement. This isn't a unity that says we do events together. Okay? This isn't a unity that says, I'm not going to speak badly about you, okay? This isn't a unity that says, we put money in the same pot. This is calling believers to live with a unity with God and with each other in the same way that Jesus and the Father have. The Father in the Son invites us into this beautiful community that he has in the Trinity. And the Son had to come to show us that, to demonstrate us, yes, to make a way, but to draw us into, because it says that we have, it speaks of Christians as being those who are in Christ. Can you say in Christ? So what that speaks of, okay, Christ, <laughs> clearly doesn't do the job, uh, Christ, and we get to be in Jesus. So all that Jesus has with the Father, we get to have, because we are in Him. We're wrapped in Him. We come before the Father as if Him. We're in Him. We're counted equal as sons before the Father, as Jesus is. The Son of God became the Son of men so that sons of men might become sons of God. Hallelujah. Or as Michael Reeves puts it again, the Father then is not about sprinkling blessings from afar. And his salvation is not about being kept at a distance, merely pitied and forgiven by the Creator. Instead, he pours all his blessing out on his Son. And then sends him that we might share in his glorious fullness. The father so loves that he desires to catch us up into that loving fellowship he enjoys with the son. And that means I can know God as he truly is, as father. In fact, I can know the father as 
my father. Hence biblical language of sons. Sometimes it's generic in terms of it could be sons or daughters, children. But quite often it's very deliberate sons. Not because it's been male chauvinistic, but it's speaking of the truth of the son of God. And we get to become like Christ, sons of God. No less access, no less intimacy, no less known by the Father. And so there are so many things you can speak of, a God, the Son, and, and Trinity. But what I felt to urge us into today is simply this. When we go through our days and we go through our lives and we commune with the Father, whether it's in a quiet time of prayer and focused devotion or whether it's on the go, when we stumble and fall and when we, when we sin, when we feel irritated and we want to bite back or we feel outside and unloved and lesser, what is the truth in those moments? Are you in the sun? Christian, are you in the sun? It's not a trick question. Yes, if you have trusted in Christ, yes, he's taken away your sins and a barrier. And if you call out for forgiveness, you get saved, but you get saved into this intimacy. You need not doubt whether God loves you. You need not doubt whether God is for you. Most of our guilt comes from a sense of thinking about ourselves more than God. But we think it's the other way around, right? Now, conviction is different, okay? Most of our guilt is because We've done something wrong, and we're wrong before God. But if you're a believer, Christ has paid for your sin. Hallelujah. And in that moment, guilt festers because we're not thinking about Jesus and what he's done for us and who we are in God. It's because we're thinking about ourselves and all the bad we've done. And actually, sometimes it feels really holy to feel really guilty. Doesn't it? The worse you feel about your sin, the more spiritual it feels, don't you think? Because surely if I've sinned and wronged God, I should be utterly miserable for a long time. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to um, minimize conviction. And when we sin, it's primarily grieving God, right? So when I sin against you, my first problem is that I've grieved God. But the moment I sin and I turn to Jesus, I think all he has in the Father is mine. He has for you. I'm sorry, Lord. I repent. I turn. He's paid it all. Hallelujah. And I get to be united back to that union with the Father that Christ has always enjoyed. And so as we come towards an end, the problem with the world is that we have turned away from God's first love and have given our love to other things. We rejected God's love and broke our relationship, walking away from Him. This break, sin has permeated all the world so that it is groaning. Can you groan? Some of you, you know, some of you are like, this is my chance to groan about the preacher. It's okay, you don't have to tell people why you're groaning. Okay, ah, oh, Scripture says that creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth, longing for the redemption of the sons of God. Longing for when all of these things are fully made right and we get to taste what it fully is to be sons of God. Hallelujah. I long for that. And while I'm alive, I'm going to do everything I can that other people can come and get to know that. The second thing, though, is the father's love response to this, us turning away, was to send his son, the exact imprint of his nature, his word of who he is, to fully communicate his heart and to call us back to him, making that possible through his perfect love, his sacrificial death in our place. 
and through his resurrection and therefore victory over sin and death. So that all who call on his name, turn back to the Father, can know, not about, not mental sin, but can know God as the Son does, themselves belonging and becoming sons of God. So when we read in 1 John 4, verses 8 to 10, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love. He sent his one and only son that we might live through him, live with the Father. Okay? Through him. So in a few moments, we're going to have communion. So there's a, there's a table at the front there, a table at the back with the and a table back there. And what I would love us to do, so if you're, a, if you're a believer, this is something that we take part in, and Jesus said that we're to do this in remembrance of him, okay? So if you're not a Christian, please don't take part. But this could be the time where you think, actually, I want to step in and call Christ my Lord and know this Father like the Son. Come and speak to me and we could pray together. It could be a first communion. Neither do we take it lightly, but we also rejoice as we take it. Hallelujah. And what I want us to do as we take it, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. I want us to, as it were, gaze upon the Son and recall as best as we can his relationship with the Father. Okay? And then ask ourselves, do I enjoy that? And if not, how can I step into it? And any thoughts, accusations of the enemy that come in, you say, no, Jesus paid it all. No, he turns to me in love. Now, we must do some heart work. If we feel convicted and we think, you know, <laughs> I broke the rules. Okay, okay, yeah, but... If breaking the rules is the first question, let's invite the Holy Spirit to give us affection for God. Is it? I grieved God. I grieved Him with my attitude. So this happened to me last night. I was just go, going about our day, um, and I, uh, in the busyness of things, and um, my wife and I uh, we were in the kitchen and said various things to each other. And I, I remember thinking at the moment. Did, did what I say actually reflect the full truth? Oh, and I just ignored it, right? And in the evening when I slowed down and stopped and went and sat outside under the, just the stars and cool air for a little while, often it's when we stop. I just felt the Holy Spirit. I was like, <laughs> I, knew, I knew what was coming. You know, it's like, you try and, I, I don't know how it works for you, you, you busy your mind quite quickly, right? Um, I just felt him whisper, that wasn't the full truth, was it? I'd said something about something. I, I couldn't even remember what it was. In the day, that didn't reflect the full truth. It reflected, a, it was true, but it was truth that favored me. Right? And uh, do you know what the hardest thing was? Um, I haven't felt that sensitivity in quite a while. I've been too busy. I just took 10 minutes to sit down. I, thought, I, I, I grieved you, Lord. Dishonored my wife. Grieved you. Not on a big issue. Would have been okay. No one would have known anything. But we so easily slip into, have I done wrong? Did I tell the truth? Yes. Did I honor the Father and the intimacy that I get to have with Him? No. 
I could have treated his daughter better, my wife. So just as we gaze upon Jesus, just it will take a few moments. Quaker, I wonder if you can come and play keys just to soften our hearts, and then we'll, we'll sing some songs in a few moments. But let's just, I just be still, and I want us to ask, am I near the Father like the Son is? He didn't send a messenger just to make sure I did it right. He came as the Son to draw me to him. So just close your eyes, whatever helps you, just for a moment. And when God puts his finger on our hearts, it's a good thing. It's to bring freedom and it's to bring release. It comes in the form of conviction. And as you feel it, just begin to, in the quiet of your heart, say sorry to the Father. The Holy Spirit, glorious Trinity, we invite you who loves to make much of Jesus, the Son of God, to awaken our hearts to the wonder of what we have as sons in the Son. And where we have grieved you and dishonored you, help us. Holy Spirit. Jesus, we look to you to know how we should be. Yes, with each other in the world, but how we should be with the Father. Vera shared a word earlier about surrendering your whole self. I was reminded of Jesus, who, Abba Father, his intimate cry how we relate to the Father. He said, uh, if there's another way, take the suffering from me. But not my will, but yours be done. He surrendered fully. Sur surrender is painful. But it is liberating. Let's just invite you right now just to surrender, fighting for your rights and putting other people down. Surrender having to come out on top and be thought of as popular and embracing the Father's approval. Surrender having to find intimacy in someone else or in something else and find it in the Father. To surrender fear and know what it is to have a mighty Father orchestrating all things for your good. Even to surrender all your hurts and disappointments and pains. The son came that he gets it. God gets your pain because he came. 